An acquaintance of mine uh, runs an electronics store in Eastern Europe, and uh, like me, this guy is known for always, always humming or whistling or singing all the time. One day, a new customer entered his shop, and my acquaintance was, uh, he was back behind, he was working on some watch parts, and, and he was absorbed, and he was, he was singing softly uh, a new Christian worship song, and then he looked up, and he saw that this customer had walked in, and, uh, and so he said, oh, can I help you? And the guy, this is fascinating, the guy stared at him, and the guy said, and I quote, are you one of those singing people? <laughs> now, the, the guy that I know thought that he meant that subset of humanity that whistles while they work, and so he said something like, well, yeah, I, I mean, there are a lot of people like that, I, I, yeah, I sing while I work. And this, get this now, the fellow looked at him, and he said, no, 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 that's not what I mean. I mean, are you one of those Christians, the singing people? Isn't that amazing? This guy, this guy recognized, he equated Christianity with the lifestyle of singing praises to God. And by the way, he's correct. For centuries, people all over the world have known that you Christians are the singing people. Please open your Bible to a great summary of this. Colossians chapter 3, verse 16. Colossians in your New Testament Chapter 3, verse 16 details how we grow up in fellowship, and it says this, Let the word of Christ dwell richly among you, in all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another through psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, singing to God with gratitude in your hearts. Three great big ideas here, three concepts that shape and change lives. First is that we read and study, uh, apply, memorize Scripture. That's how the Word dwells among our souls richly. Secondly is to nurture significant relationships, teaching and admonishing one another. And the third, through psalms, hymns, spiritual songs, singing to God, worshiping God with gratitude. That is our focus today. And, and by learning to live it, folks, worship has the capacity to change all of our days. Pray with me, please. Let's pray. Father, we pray for this time in your word that you will teach us how to eliminate the blockades to our worship, how to genuinely sing to you with gratitude in our hearts. We pray even for those who can't be with us today. We ask you to encourage and bless them in the same way. In Jesus' name, amen. Singing is the main verbal around which this passage is built. Singing to God is a vitally important activity. Oh, by the way, it's the, uh, it's the headline in the left side of your notes. You've got a worship guide when you came in. Look in there, and you'll see the headline, Singing to God. There is a reason Christians have always been known as a singing people. Worship is a critical part of how we are shaped, a regular expression of gratitude to God for the miracle of being in fellowship with Him and with His people. Now, this singing is expressed in three ways. Psalm Psalms, hymns, spiritual songs. Let's look at those. Psalms almost certainly means singing from the Psalter. That's the, the 150 uh, songs that are in your Old Testament that comprise the Hebrew songbook. Those are the, the Hebrew greatest hits. The Hebrews and the earliest Christians used those psalms as their guidebook for singing. Look, it was how they memorized important ideas of God. They would grab tunes. By the way, a lot of times those tunes were very, very bawdy and outside of the faith tradition. But they would grab those tunes and they would use those tunes to cement God's truths in their hearts. Because that's what tunes do. I mean, you know, you know music retains that same power today. I'm going to prove it to you. Here's what we're going to do. We're going to do a little game. I'm going to start singing. I'm just going to do a few, a few words of a song, and then you pick it up and continue it. Okay? You ready? 
Here we go. Many of you will know this one. There were voices down the corridor. Thought I heard them say, hey. The Hotel California. Very good. All right. Here's one that's newer for you, for you younger folks. Here's one that's newer. Wish I could turn back. Wish we could turn back time. Back to the good old days. Go ahead. When our mama sang us to sleep, but now we're stressed out. Very good. All right. Here's one. This is, this is simple. Everybody, ready? We are farmers. Very good. Music. It is amazing. Here's an old one. Some of, some of you are younger may not get this. Uh, you ready? I'm a Bill. I'm just a Bill. And I'm waiting here on Capitol Hill. Well, now I'm off to the White House. Okay, good enough. You got it, right? That's the power of music for memory. Therefore, a person who wants to be shaped over the long term should sing to the Lord. The psalms that we sing, you know what they do? They, they brand themselves on our minds, which, by the way, allows us to be shaped for years and years to come. It is much more positive for your long-term growth than knowing we are farmers, bomb, 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 right? Singing to God is not only the appropriate response to God's greatness, it, it, it changes us because nothing sticks in our long-term memory like a song. Hymns, hymns are, are also used to sing appropriate praises to God. Now, what constituted a hymn in the first century is a matter of a great deal of debate. Uh, we know there were hymns sung in the earliest churches, but we aren't certain what they were. Um, there are, there, this is interesting. There are a number of scholars who think that there are poetic sections of your New Testament that were actually hymns. They, are, they constitute hymns. For example, here in Colossians, over in chapter 1, there's a, there's a long, beautiful poem about the greatness of Jesus. Here's one part of it. Uh, he is, in fact, if you just listen to this, you can almost hear a rhythm in it. He is before all things, and by him all things hold together. He is also the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he might come to have first place in everything. Isn't that beautiful? Now, it's very, listen very carefully. It's very important to note that Paul stops his acceptable forms of singing after hymns. He says psalms, hymns, and absolutely nothing else, right? Is that what it says in your text? I couldn't hear you. What is this? Is that? No. God specifically inspires the phrase spiritual songs. These aren't scripture. These aren't old accepted hymns, but they capture scriptural ideas. They are spiritual songs. And our forefathers have always added them. Always added them. Think of this. Our forefathers who were enslaved were especially keen to embrace the spiritual song. So much so that there is an entire genre of music known as the Negro spiritual. These songs, these contain some of the best songs ever written to God. And, and in fact, they are so powerful that even if you are not a Christian, even if you've, your first time to ever be in a church, I bet you know these songs. Let's do our game again. You ready? I'm only going to say two words, two words, and I bet you know the rest. Swing low. Coming for to carry me home. You like that? That's good. Swing low, sweet chariot. Everybody, coming for to carry me home. Here's one. This may not be known by as many of you, but, but you may recognize it. Going to lay down my sword and shield. Very good. Down by the riverside. Okay, that's enough. Stop right there. Stop it. Stop it. Stop it. All right. One more. One more real quickly. Nobody knows. 
if you've seen Recess, you know this. Nobody knows my sorrow. Very good. Do you want to be changed for the better? Throughout your life, the rest of your life, lodge praises in your brain. Sing to God through all kinds, psalms, hymns, spiritual songs, and do so with gratitude. Singing to God always involves heartfelt gratitude. Look up here. This is, this is Psalm 100, one of the most famous hymns of praise. Listen to it. Shout praises to the Lord, all the earth. Worship the Lord with joy. Enter his presence with joyful singing. Acknowledge that the Lord is God. He made us. We belong to him. We are his people, the sheep of his pasture. Enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. Give, give him thanks. Praise his name for the Lord is good. His loyal love endures, and he is faithful through all generations. All God's people said, praise God. Worship him with joy. Why? Because we are so grateful. And I know, I know, that brings up the question that you're asking in your, uh, your famous grumpy cat imitation, meow, which we all know means, what do we have to be grateful about? You don't know the trouble I've seen. Thank you, grumpy cat. Great question. Thank you for asking. No matter what trouble you have seen, and we've all seen it, there is so much for which to praise God. Just, look, look, just, just start with verse 2. Look at this. We can enter His presence. We who deserve absolutely nothing except eternal separation from God forever, condemned to hell forever, that is fair. That is what we deserve. We can, by God's grace, we can enter the presence of Yahweh Himself. Can I get a hallelujah over that? And further, we belong to him. Look, verse 3. Verse 3 reminds us that God himself is our good shepherd. He shepherds our lives. And God's good. Look, look at verse 5. He's not, like, he's not like people. He's not like those capricious demons that pose as pagan gods. He is altogether good. In fact, verse 5 says his hesed, that's the Hebrew word we translate loyal love, it endures forever to all those who are in his covenant there are literally millions of reasons to sing to God with gratitude, and we are expected to do so together. Now, it doesn't come through in English because until Texas conquers the world, English lacks a universally accepted plural you. Uh, but, but, amen, yeah. Preach it, y'all. The, the you and the your in Colossians uh, in 3.16 actually really would be best rendered y'all and, and y'alls. Not all y'alls. That's different. Um, remember, remember the context here. Colossians 3.16. This, this verse is about how we become smooth stones, right, for God's service. We want to be as useful as those ones that David picked up when he went to fight Goliath. And, and, and the verbiage here is all corporate. So, so in group worship, think what this is saying. We do more. We don't just engage vertically with God in an individual plane. We also grow horizontally in fellowship. A pastor named Brian Wright um, did a great job exposing the import of this. I put part of this in your notes. I liked it so much. Uh, Brian says this, God created us to connect with him and others, not one or the other. He chooses to have an intimate relationship with us both individually and communally. We are to understand our lives in relation to both. We're to live perennially as people standing before God, meaning individually. Scripture, you know, in a number of different places says each, each person will stand before God, give an account. We don't, we don't give account for our parents or our children or anyone else. It's individually, and that's true, okay? We, we need to live as perennially as people standing before God and connected to others. This interlocking interchange, alternating between time alone with God and time together with others, constitutes the rhythm of the Christian life. 
A false dichotomy has arisen between our individual lives with God and our corporate lives with other believers. This widespread mentality operative among churches and churchgoers has led to a fragmented and unrhythmic Christian life. As a result, and I think he's right here, as a result, we experience less unity and focus almost exclusively on our own individual needs. Sadly true. But what can be done? As, as, you, are, as you are surely asking in your generic worship leader voice, um, dude, like, like, how should we establish worship with God that has gratitude and we do it together? Like, how? Thank you so much for asking, generic worship leader. Uh, the first thing to do is identify the specific problems. What are the obstacles that keep us from worshiping and, and, and having gratitude and being together? On the right side of our notes, you'll see I enumerate some of the fellowship killers. These are the, these are the things that hurt our developmental fellowship with God and with humans. First is sin. Nothing destroys fellowship with God and man like sin. Look at the very first appearance of the word sin. Genesis chapter 4, verse 7, God speaks to Cain. Sin is crouching at the door, and its desire is for you, but you must master it. Do you see the violation of Cain's relationship with God? Cain, Cain has already allowed sin to get right to the door of his life. The sovereign God can see the danger. The danger is sin lurking there. By the way, the term we translate sin is hatat. It's, a, it's an ancient word, it, a really ancient word. It originally uh, seems to have meant to slip. Or to, or to make a wrong step, kind of like to turn your ankle. It's a, it's a misstep. Over time, it, it came to be used for an archery term, and it was to miss the mark of something. Hatat is, is anything that is against God's character or precept. Sin means walking away from, from God's sure path. Sin is missing the mark of God's goodness. And notice this, notice this. Cain's sin doesn't just affect his relationship with God. It destroys his relationship with all people. The mark of Cain proves that. Look, look at the next verse. Cain told Abel his brother, and it came about when they were in the field, that Cain rose up against Abel his brother and killed him. That's what sin has been doing ever since. It kills relationships. <laughs> Your sin will never stay hidden. It never affects, oh, it's just me. It doesn't affect anyone else. That is a lie. Sin always harms both our vertical and our horizontal relationships. That's what it does. Second blockade is isolation. When we introduced this annual vision, uh, I shared my wonder that I had written in my Bible one time. Why did David give smooth stones? Why did he grab smooth stones to fight Goliath? Um, and I told of how my Israeli friend, when I was in Israel, he showed me, the, in the, we were in the very wadi where David picked up those stones, and he showed me the difference between the flight of a rough stone and the flight of a smooth stone. It was amazing. The, the, a rough stone does not fly true at all. Look, the, the smooth stone flies faster. It flies truer. Ronnie told me. He said, it, it cuts through the atmosphere. It stays on target. The smooth stone is useful for what God wants to do. Just think about this. If David had, had, if he had picked up rough stones for his battle with Goliath, I don't think we'd know who he was. He would have just been another notch on Goliath's belt. Isn't that fascinating and horrifying? David grabbed smooth stones. Now, why did he go to the stream bed? That's another thing I'd written in my Bible. Why go to the wadi to get the smooth stones? Well, you, you, you probably know. Because the friction in the river makes all the difference. The living water, that's water that moves under its own power. Living water is very powerful. And the living water combined with the other rocks makes all the ones that are inside the wadi smooth. It is very rare that you have a rock that is smooth outside of the riverbed. So whatever our personalities, our backgrounds, our styles, we must engage. If we stay isolated, it keeps us 
from being polished. And, and, and also, it's not just about you. It keeps other people who need your friction from being polished. Similar fellowship killer is a wasted opportunity to serve with excellence. This happens all the time. Folks, when we don't serve the common good with the same kind of effort that God exhibits in His common grace, we actually diminish the collective good. We actually steal from our fellow citizens. For example, I want to show you just three. I only have time for three. These are shoddy efforts that made life worse for everyone, okay? You probably cannot see the numbers, but let me show you. This is somebody's job was to put the numbers on this seating at a stadium. I'm going to read the bottom row to you. 11, or sorry, 15, 16, 2, 3, 4, 11, 12, 13. Can you imagine what game day's like? How about this one? Can you imagine having a cup of tea out of this? Now, I looked this guy up. It was a mistake. He did it and actually didn't realize it was a mistake, but it tickled him so much he made a website called Masochist Teapot, and he makes money <laughs> selling these. Here's, here's another one. You had one job. Look, it takes a minute. I know this is hard for you men because you never put anything up, but, but when you do, the lid is supposed to be on top of the seat, not underneath it, Okay. These, but now I, I chose constructions. Uh, these are all about construction things because that's an area where shoddiness is, is very visible. It's also why God introduces this term right here, avodah. Exodus 36, he introduces this fascinating word, avodah. I want to read it to you in context. It appears three times in this passage. Then all the artisans were doing all the work for the sanctuary, uh, that were doing all the work for the sanctuary, came by one from one from the work they were doing and said to Moses, the people are bringing more than is needed for the construction of the work the Lord commanded to be done. Now that's avodah. We translate it work or construction. But get this. This is amazing. Not much later in the development of the Hebrew language, later in your Old Testament, avodah is not translated work. It's translated worship. Possibly because it was used so often in the work of constructing the tabernacle, the, the place of God's worship. But do you, do you understand the idea? In this one word, work and worship are connected. And, and in the same way, our work and our worship can be connected in our everyday lives. Every moment of work is an opportunity for worship. And it's, a, it's an opportunity we can either embrace or we can waste. Scripture shows two ways that our work becomes a wasted opportunity. First, when it isn't done as an outflow of seeking God. Jeremiah 10.21 explains... For the shepherds are stupid. They, I know you were taught that was a bad word growing up. Follow your parents. But God used... Anyway, uh, the, um, for the, for the, sorry, follow your parents. For the shepherds are stupid. They don't seek the Lord. Therefore, they have not prospered, and their whole flock is scattered. Now, seek the Lord uh, probably could best be translated seek the Lord's wisdom or seek the Lord's advice. The, the point is these workers are failing precisely because they go all day without any thought of God. Thank goodness we're not like that, right? We are, or are we? Let's find out. I want to give you a brief assessment. Just four questions, four very simple questions. True, false. Answer true or false to every one of these. Number one, my overriding thought with any task is how much money it brings in. True or false? Question number two, I hardly ever or never Think about my work as a way to worship. The, the interplay of work and worship, that just, I mean, I, I get the concept, but that just doesn't cross my mind. True or false? 
This is for posterity, so try to be honest. Number three, God may care about some work. I can see that. He cares about some work, but not mine. My, this, this is not important. What I do is too mundane. True or false? Work cannot be worship when business is bad. I mean, there's no, I have such a terrible boss, or I have such horrible employees, or, 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 or there's just no money. Business is so bad, there's no way it can be worship in this environment. True or false? If we answer true to any of those, we are fall, true to any of those, we are falling into the trap that Jeremiah described. As Jeremiah said, we're being stupid. We're missing work as worship. And when we waste the chance to work as an empowerment from God to worship Him, it, it hampers our fellowship with God and with people. Second problem that arises when our work, it arises when our work is, is based on greed and not on faith. Uh, it's pithily described, Proverbs chapter 28, verse 25. Uh, greed causes fighting. By the way, Proverbs often, and this is one of them, Proverbs often sets up uh, dichotomous statements. There's one that says one thing, and then the, op, the next... The next clause says the next thing. Okay, you got, so this is one of those. Greed causes fighting. By the way, does anybody have any doubt about that? Okay, if you don't think greed causes fighting, please get up now, go over to the other building, ask to go to the two-year-old room. <laughs> it will become very evident to you, okay? Greed causes fighting. Well, what's the opposite of that? Trusting the Lord leads to prosperity. Trusting the Lord leads to prosperity. We, we learned in a recent series we did on work, that good work is about contributing. It's about adding value. God is the provider, and compensation should be trustingly left in God's hands. Stephen Grable of the Acton Institute had a great comment on this verse. He said, in good work, contribution precedes remuneration. I can personally testify to this. When, when one is concerned with one's own contribution and not with remuneration, everything works better. If you focus on trusting God and working hard, it will shock you how productive you can be. It will shock you how much you can contribute. And frankly, quite often, the income is also going to follow as a shocking and welcome surprise. By contrast, work based on greed hurts our fellowship with God and it hurts our relationship with people. Another fellowship killer is distraction. Squirrel! Um, when, 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 somebody, when we're never clear-headed and present, our relationships become scattered, vertical and horizontal. Anybody know who Alexis Ohanian is? Do you know that name? He founded Reddit. He founded a company called Intercapital, a couple other businesses I can't remember. His wife's more famous. Her name's Serena Williams. All right, you heard of her? All right. Okay. He said this recently about the, the, the problem, the toxic problem of busyness and distraction. He said this, you have this culture of posturing, this culture that glorifies the most absurd things and ignores things like self-care, and ignores things like therapy, ignores things like actually taking care of yourself as a physical being for the sake of work at all costs. It is a toxic problem. Social media has made it possible to weaponize it to the point where if bragging about your difficult work week gets you hearts, you're incentivized to keep pushing the limits, close quote. He's right. And social media certainly incentivizes busyness and distraction. Social media incentivizes distracted thinking. Look at this new book from Cal Newport. Uh, Cal Newport, uh, Digital Minimalism, has this quote. This is brilliant. He says, the urge to check social media becomes a nervous twitch that shatters uninterrupted time into shards too small to support the presence necessary for an intentional life. Very well said. Of course, social media is just one distraction, right? There are many others. So what I did was I got a small group of people together, six people, 
I just did a little quick focus group, and I asked them to, uh, to tell me, what, give me one thing that is a distraction that keeps you from singing to God all day through your day. I, and we didn't mean verbally singing necessarily, just what keeps you from worshiping God in gratitude through your day? I was really fascinated by the answers. These were the six answers I received. My kids, Facebook, laundry, my phone, noise, and one guy said everything. <laughs> I, I agree. I agree. Now, let me add two more blockades. These are two more blockades that keep us from being shaped by worshiping God. Groupthink. Groupthink is a horrible problem. Um, it's a horrible problem for humanity. It tends to become worse in an election year. Here is my best attempt to encapsulate groupthink. Groupthink is based in fear. This is very, very significant. It's always about fear. Oh, we've got to be scared. Oh, my goodness, we've got to be alarmed. Oh, we've got to be afraid. Everything is a dramatic, fearful thing, and that's the setup for groupthink. That's where it flourishes. It is concerned with other people's opinion, very, very much concerned with human opinion. It is focused on unanimity in word and deed. Everyone must do the same thing and do it the same way at the same time, right? This is really critical. Oop, I went too far. It always is looking to critique and accuse people, especially anyone who's not on board. Ooh, oh, you, you're not acting right. You did something 15 years ago, and I know that, that, it, that that's, that's what group thinks all about. It's always accusatory, and it admires its own orthodoxy. Well, I am one of the ones that is in the group thing. That's, that's how groupthink works. My pulpit team partner, Martin McDonald, sent me a really great insight about groupthink. He said, Wayne, what one values in groupthink, what one values becomes associated with human identity and worth. If you value what I value, you're valuable. If you don't, you are worthless, and thus not worthy of time and attention. Indoctrination becomes more important than truth. Close quote. You know what's particularly ironic? This amazes me. Um, Groupthink always inevitably achieves the exact opposite of what the enforcers of the party line desire. Groupthink ultimately always splinters the people. It never, it never unites, ever. Final enemy is perfectionism. This is my all-time favorite picture of perfectionism. By the way, I think that's brilliant. Please, please don't misunderstand. Discipline is useful. Planning is very useful. Perfectionism is not. Uh, my friend Bob Wilkin explains this really well. Uh, Bob, who has preached here before, writes this. If you're a perfectionist, you may have trouble with the ambiguities of growing in fellowship. I would encourage you to realize that God is not out to trip us up. He loves us. He wants us to be in fellowship with him. Bob says this, I was raised under a lot of perfectionism. When I came to faith, I found it hard to envision God loving me just as I was. Oh, I knew he accepted me just as I was because of Jesus. But for a time, I thought he must be as dissatisfied with me as my earthly father was. Only as I matured in the faith did I realize that God the Father is not like my earthly father. I came to see that he was satisfied with the gradual progress I was making in the Christian life. I'd love to be perfect right now. I bet you would too. But that day is yet future. Until then, let's walk in fellowship with each other and God. All God's people said. This is why perfectionism kills group worship. The perfectionist doesn't feel worthy of praising God in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Um, they... they they a lot of times will say, truthfully or not, well, I, I just, I don't, I don't, I don't sing well, uh, which is funny because the Scripture never commands us to make beautiful music. It says make a joyful noise. Um, 
And, and, and so what will happen is, the, the per, but that's really not the issue. The issue is not, well, I don't sing well. I don't, I don't like hearing other people. None of that's it. It's that I don't feel worthy. I can't enjoy God's grace and sing about it because I think God is judging my unworthy efforts. And by the way, have you noticed this? That usually makes the perfectionist very critical of other people's efforts as well. In a nutshell, perfectionism blinds us to grace. It is, it is heartbreaking. You know what? Real quick side note here. You know what's most fascinating to me about perfectionism today as I see it today? Perfectionism is sometimes lurking behind two opposite kinds of lifestyles, messiness and hyperminimalism. Think about it. If you throw everything away, if you're always completely tidy, it may be that you're struggling with perfectionism. You're trying to be totally in control. Good luck with that. Contrarily, perfectionism, and I know this sounds ironic and weird, but it, it can be behind the depressed, messy person because I can never get it really right. I just don't even want to start cleaning, right? The, the, the biggest tragedy is what this does to relationships. Perfectionism is a fellowship killer. Now, remember your question. This was your question that started the whole discussion. Like, dude, how should we establish worship where, where God is worshiped in gratitude together? Great question. First, and we've done this, is identify the problems. Secondly, apply the correct solutions. These are referred to as the fellowship restorers in your notes. Remember how sin destroys fellowship? The solution is to love God. Read it with me. Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 5. Line by line, Deuteronomy 6, 5. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. Amen. Now, in Hebrew thought, if you don't know this, these, these ideas, heart, soul, strength, these are, these are actually words that are used greatly interchangeably. The, the point's not any division of those. It is the repetition. That's the power of Deuteronomy 6.5. It is a triune statement of loving the triune God with your all. And when we do that, when we love God with our all, it actually becomes difficult to sin. It's a, think of it like a, a relationship with, with a spouse. You could be very angry with your spouse, but if you stop and make sure that you are committed to loving that spouse with your all, you love them with everything, it is very unlikely that you will sin in your anger. Your anger will be used for good. It will not be used for evil because you chose to love with your all. Loving God is even more important. It's even more powerful. It positions us to sing His praises, something that is only right. It's necessary for our changing. Secondly, worship God in your work. Look up here, 1 Corinthians 10, 31. Whether you eat or drink, whatever you do, read the last line, everybody. Do everything for the glory of God. Story time. Story time. One of my favorite stories about this verse, this comes from Jay Slocum uh, in uh, work, uh, Made to Worship. Made to Worship. All right, here's what Jay says. He's a pastor. He's still a good guy, even though he's a pastor. All right, anyway. Um, I was a creative teenager with a propensity for punk rock and a love for what would become known as extreme sports. Months after my conversion, while newly enrolled in a very strict Christian school, I discovered Bible memorization. I recall sitting on the edge of a skateboard ramp on my BMX bike in the fall, rehearsing the verse assigned for our ninth grade class. Whatever you do, do it to the glory of God, I said before rolling down the ramp. As I rode my bike, I repeated that phrase until it was memorized. It's still with me today. However, the meaning of that verse was lost to me at the time. I recall asking God, how can I BMX to your glory? I mean, do I pedal like a preacher? Do I hit the jump in a religious way? I could not understand this verse primarily because I could only equate worship with being in church or explicitly speaking about God, thankfully. God has worked in my heart and mind over the years to develop an understanding that has allowed me to see the whole of my life as an act of worship. How? 
To put it succinctly, the key was a proper theology of work and rest coupled with a distinction between corporate and individual worship. If Christians, if, if Christians see work as a worshipful act while also seeing Sabbath-keeping as a way of offering our rest to God, a very large part of our life becomes worship. Moreover, when we realize that God desires us together for corporate worship on Sunday, for instance, and then He desires us to scatter throughout the world in an offering of individual worship in our work, the only time worship is not taking place is in our sleep. And if one prays before going to bed and invites the Lord into one's dreams, I see no reason we can't argue the whole of our lives is offered to God as worship. As Paul says, whether you eat or drink, whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. All God's people said, amen. Now, let's do something real quickly. I want to do something. You guys know that we usually commission missionaries, which is biblical. And, and, and we, uh, we often pray for all the teachers, like at the start of a school year, which is great. But I think it would be very appropriate to pray for every one of us whatever our work, that we will do it as worship. It doesn't matter if you're looking for work, if you're retired, if you're holding down three jobs, if you're a student, whatever. Everybody stand up right now. Stand up for your commissioning, your work as worship commissioning. May you and I worship the Lord God Almighty in our work, whatever it is, and whatever He gives us to do, let us do it heartily as for the Lord, not for people. All God's people said... Amen. You may be seated. How can we resurrect life-changing worship? Here's a big idea. Praise God whether He gives or takes away. That's a lesson from Ecclesiastes 7.14. In the day of prosperity, be joyful. But in the day of adversity, consider God has made the one as well as the other. Popular spiritual song earlier in the century put it this way. Blessed be your name. In the land that is plentiful, where your streams of abundance flow, blessed, you can sing it, go ahead. Blessed be your name, blessed be your name, when I'm found in the desert place, though I walk through the wilderness, blessed be your name. Very good. The key is to sing when we are in the abundant and when we are truly in the desert place. And a member of this church has, has recently showed a beautiful picture of the latter, um, this lady is homebound due to a painful and disfiguring illness. And she's been, she's been very honest about her laments with the Lord, and that's good. But she also has found her life shaped by praising God. In the middle of her serious illness, she recently posted this. On Facebook, she wrote this. Anyone else just stop walking through their home and spontaneously sing, Blessed Assurance? No, just me, she wrote. This is my story, she quotes that hymn. This is my song, praising my Savior all the day long. Everyone together now, she wrote, she wrote that. Everyone, she's going to see this, okay? She's going to watch this. So let's be loud. You ready? Okay, here we go. This is my story. This is my song, praising my Savior all the day long. Amen. Very good. All right. Two more fellowship restorers. Worship in the assembly. Biblically. There's no excuse for withdrawing from the larger assembly for worship. Not, not outside of particular nuanced times like, uh, like illness and stuff. There's no, look, Hebrews 10 is emphatic about this. Listen, let us hold on to the confession of our hope without wavering since he who promised is faithful. And let us watch out for one another to provoke love and good works, not neglecting to gather together as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging each other all the more as you see the day, meaning the day of Jesus' return, approaching. Group worship is commanded. What does it change in us? 
Here's, here's maybe the most important thing it does, at least in our culture right now. It arrests groupthink. Groupthink cannot survive group worship. Look, look at the differences. Groupthink is based in fear, right? Always based in fear. Not group worship. It's based in gratitude. Groupthink is always concerned with other people's opinion. Group worship only cares about one opinion, and that is that of God. Period. It's the only one that matters. Groupthink is focused on unanimity in words and deeds. Group worship is focused on unity in the Spirit of God, which is completely diverse, every tribe and tongue and nation. Groupthink always is looking to critique and accuse. That is what it's all about. Group worship is looking to unify everybody under Jesus. Under that aegis of our Lord, everyone is together. Groupthink admires its own orthodoxy. We don't. We know we're sinners. We admire the Holy Spirit's work that He can use broken vessels like us. Group worship is the antidote our culture needs. Last means of restoring fellowship with God and people is to confess sins. John and James combined. They give us the biblical doctrine. Here it is, vertical and horizontal. Look, 1 John chapter 1, verse 8. If we say we have no sin, we're deceiving ourselves. That truth's not in us. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. James adds, chapter 5, Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. Close quote. Confession occurs vertically and it occurs horizontally. It is healing. And the certain forgiveness that we have in Jesus inspires singing to God with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. I received a really smart letter about this. <clears throat> Guy wrote me and he said, I have, to, I have to lay aside my pride, own up to my shortcomings, and confess to my all-holy and righteous God that I sinned against Him. Since most sin also includes a human being made in God's image and loved by Him, I must confess to that person as well. With this posture of, of confession, I find it easier to move into a repentance prayer seeking God to transform my fleshly nature into the all-loving nature that God commands the maturing believer seek daily. Close quote. He is correct. So let's do this. Let's close our time with some confession. And then let's follow that with a moment of praise. Okay? I think this would be great. You don't have to. If, if you wish and if you are able, I invite you to kneel. I, I'm going to kneel up here. I would love some company. If you want to come kneel up here, it can be a really great place to, to prepare your heart before the Lord. But we're, whether you want to kneel there or not, let's get ready. Let's prepare ourselves, and then I'm going to guide us through a time of confession. Let's confess to the Lord. Confess your sin. Mortify, call it what it is. Turn to the righteous, all-holy God and confess sin. Now thank God. Thank God because we, we, <laughs> we don't grieve as the world does, as those who have no hope. We confess with joy. 
The reason we can confess with joy is because of Jesus. Look, friend, if you, if you don't know, let me tell you the story. Jesus is fully God. And he came to earth and took on human form, becoming fully God and man in one. And through incredible fulfillment of prophecy and miracles, he proved that he is exactly who he claims to be, God the Son. And then, in the greatest story twist in all of time, he willingly gave his life on the cross so that everyone who trusts him, he could pay for their sin. That's why we confess with joy. Our sin is atoned. This happens for those who believe on Jesus. And by the way, he didn't stay dead. He rose from the dead so that we can follow him in eternal life. If you've never done so, trust Jesus right now. Believe in him. Everybody's still praying, but if you trusted Jesus, raise your hand. I'd like to rejoice with you, just you and me. Raise your hand, let me see you. Good for you. Amen. Father, I thank you for these believers, new and old. I thank you for how awesomely great you are. And I pray we can sing about it all day, every day. In Jesus' name, amen.